Well, as we prepare to dive into God's word this morning, I do want to just take a moment to say thank you. Uh, you have been such a support to my wife and I as she's been uh, sick the last week. She is uh, progressing. She still has a long way to go, but she is certainly making progress. And we just appreciate all the, the love and care that you've extended to us. We love you very much, and we really feel your prayers, and tangibly, you've been such a great blessing to us. So thank you for supporting us in that. It was uh, hard to be away last week, but I'm very thankful to be back in the pulpit this morning. We just sang those words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. It is well with my soul. Such moving and famous words of truth. But I want you to imagine yourself for a moment on a boat, staring into the ocean depths at the very spot in which just a few weeks ago, your four children tragically drowned. That was the occasion that stirred Horatio Spafford to pen these now famous words. His wife and four children had left a few weeks earlier on a boat to cross the Atlantic Ocean on their way to England, and he had planned to join them soon after, but had some matters of business to take care of first, and so he planned to join a few weeks later, but tragically, sadly, on that journey, the boat carrying his wife and four children collided with another vessel, causing that ship quickly to sink. And in God's providence, Spafford's wife survived and was rescued, but the four children passed away. Upon receiving word of the tragedy, Spafford immediately made plans to travel and to be with his wife. And so he gets on a boat to cross and make that same journey. And when they come to the place of the shipwreck, the captain of the boat calls Spafford above deck to look over the side and shows him where his children now laid to rest, and it said that on that journey, Spafford penned these words, it is well with my soul. How did he do that? How did he possibly muster the faith necessary to write such words of truth and trust in God in the midst of a terrible, life-altering tragedy? And better yet, how can we cultivate that same kind of steadfast faith in our own lives? You know, this week I initially planned to preach from Hebrews again, and we will return there, Lord willing, next week. And, but in my studies, my heart really kept coming back to one place. As Rebecca and I just walked through the trial in our own lives, James chapter 1 Verses 2 to 4 kept ringing in my ears, and so I, perhaps selfishly so, but needing to think on these things, chose for us to, to focus our attention this morning on this wonderful text. Because in these first few verses, James reveals that one of the primary tools that God uses in the life of the believer to, to hone our faith and strengthen our faith is that gift of personal trials. And in these three short verses, he gives us a, a recipe for maximizing the spiritual good that God intends to bring out of the trials in our lives. The letter of James is written by James, the half-brother of our Lord, who also would, would be an overseer or elder in the church at Jerusalem. And he's writing to a group of Christians who are dispersed abroad pushed out of their homes because of persecution for their faith. And so his readers understand poignantly what it is to be in a trial. They're, they're living in a trial as he writes to them, and he knows that. And so right out of the gate, right after his introductory comments, he begins to instruct them on how they ought to think about the trial in which they live. Let's read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In these verses, James gets across one resounding idea. He tells us that we must regard trials a great joy, for God produces through them steadfastness and holiness. Let me say that again. We are to regard trials a great joy, for God produces through them steadfastness and holiness. And in this recipe for maximizing the trials that come in our lives, he's going to give us a couple of ingredients. The first ingredient in this recipe is your perspective of trials in verse 2. Your perspective. And he's going to give us two steps for cultivating the right perspective when it comes to trials. Step number one is that we need to understand the value of trials. Understand the value of trials in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. Now, this is a shocking command. And remember, this is the first thing he says after the introductory greetings. He begins with this, this, this heart-throbbing, grab-you-by-the-shirt command, consider it all joy. Now, we need to think about this word consider for a moment because it really gives us the clue as to what he's saying here. The force of this word consider is not simply the author inviting us into a process of thought. He's actually commanding us as Christians to come to a specific conclusion. It's a command for us to take control of our thoughts as we think about trials and to lead our thoughts to a predetermined end. So he's not suggesting that it would be a good idea for us all this morning to consider what he's saying. He's saying when it comes to this subject matter, Christians must think a certain way. It's a good reminder that as believers, we don't have free reign to draw our own conclusions about life, about God, about our circumstances. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, our minds are to be bound by and conformed to the revealed truth of Scripture. The Christian mind is to be a mind in a continual state of sanctification in which our minds are daily being transformed by the word of God as the spirit works in us through the word so that our thoughts become more and more the thoughts of God himself. Notice also the word consider is not just a command, it's a command in the present tense. The idea is this is a continual action that that we are to always think about trials in this way, every time. It's a continual daily action. Also notice that this command is not a physical activity. This is a command to a mental action, to think a certain way. He's highlighting something for us here that's crucial for every Christian to understand, and that is the fact that sanctification begins in the mind. Our our battle with sin, our, our understanding of truth and assimilation of that truth begins in our mind. This is Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your minds. And so we have a responsibility as Christians to to bind our thoughts and to bind our perspective to truth, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of our emotions. That doesn't mean that it's sinful to have emotions. Emotions are God-given. They're actually a gift of God in many ways. But emotions serve as a terrible leader when it comes to the way we think. In the heat of a trial, you will experience a wide range of fluctuating emotions that often come upon you without warning. And the command here is not to, to stoically stifle your emotions. It's a command to lead your mind to safe pastures of truth even in the midst of your emotions. Think of, it, think of it this way. For James to give us this command to consider, to think a certain way, means that for the Christian, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to control the way we think. We can tell ourselves what to think. 
It's such a relief to know as a Christian, you are not a victim of your thoughts. You don't have to give in to the temptation to think in the way that your emotions are screaming at you to think. You know, so many times we justify sinful perspectives based on external circumstances, don't we? But James makes an unconditional command to us that we must take control of our perspective when it comes to the way we think about trials. But what's even more shocking is, is the value that James says that we should place on trials. Because he doesn't say just think, he says think this way, consider it all joy, he says. Consider it all joy. Now that word all in the Greek text actually starts the sentence. So the Greek text uh, order, word order is this, all joy consider it. That's the way the text actually reads, but that doesn't serve for good English, so we have to move that around. But the point is, the emphasis in the Greek text is on the word all. In Greek, if you want to emphasize something, you put it at the beginning of the sentence, and that's what he does here. All joy consider it. And when you think of the word all here, in this context, don't think about it as referring to every piece within a group, as in all inclusively. Think of it as describing the degree or the quality of the joy that should be ours when we think about Christ, of, of the way that we, the quality we should place upon this kind of joy. So when he says all here, really a good way to translate this would be to consider it a great joy or pure joy. He's, he's, he's giving a quality to the joy. Consider it highest joy. And so he's not commanding us to feel a certain way about trials. He's commanding us to think about trials in a certain way and to value trials to a certain degree. So this is not a command to put on a fake smile or to take up a naive perspective on life. It's not a command to take on sort of the name it and claim it mentality that, that our role in trials is just to, to name and claim that God's going to take it away. This is not a command that implies that it's sinful or wrong to be sad or to grieve when you walk through difficult times. You know, if you go to the doctor today for anything, they're going to ask you if you are sad. And sometimes um, I'm like, well, I, I think I would need medication if I was not sad about what's happening, right? God has given us the emotion of grief for a reason. And sadness and grief in and of itself is not sinful. Now, it can lead us into sinful perspectives, yes, but the, the emotion of feeling grief or sadness over something that is truly sad is not wrong or sinful. Remember, in Hebrews, we've been studying that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. In John chapter 11, we see that Jesus himself weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus when he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. And yet he, he empathizes with those grieving around him, and he, he grieves for the death of his friend. And so understand, James is not being calloused here when he says, consider it all joy. Instead, he's saying, you need to have the perspective that God has about your trial. You need to think the way that God would have you think about what's happening to you. So when God says, consider it all joy, he means that we're to look past the pain of the trial, not that it doesn't exist, but we're to look past the pain of the trial to the God behind the trial. Alec Moit here says, there is no trial, no great calamity or small pressure, no overwhelming sorrow or small rub of life outside that plan of God, whereby it is a stepping stone to glory. You understand what he's saying? On either end of the scale, there is no trial in your life, big or small, that is not woven into this plan that God has to cause you to progress in your sanctification. This is a call to consider our hardships in life as divine gifts from God for the purpose of cultivating within us steadfastness and personal holiness. So considering it all joy then, again, is not to deny the pain of the trial, but it is to refuse to allow that pain to keep us from praising and worshiping and trusting and serving God in the midst of that trial. 
And all of this can be done literally as your body trembles with physical pain. And it can be done as tears and outcries of grief overflow from you without control. We have to be very careful not to judge a person's faith or perspective based on outward emotional responses that they may have to a given trial. A person can be wailing in grief while maintaining fully a heart of love for God and trust in God's plans. On the other end of the equation, a person can maintain an outward facade of control, even an outward facade of, of happiness, while in their heart they're harboring bitterness and anger towards God. And so we ought not to judge a person's spiritual maturity or their response spiritually to a trial because of the the physiological effects of the emotions of that grief that we feel in the midst of difficulty. But in summary, this command is to take control of our thoughts about trials and to take on the same perspective that God has, and that is that trials ought to be valued with highest joy. But James adds something now that's of utmost importance for us. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. My brethren. Now, that's a term of endearment, but it's also a term of humility as James brings himself to the same level. He says, you are my brothers. We are on the same playing field, the same spiritual plane. But it's also a term that makes it undeniably clear that James considers himself to be speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who are brothers in Christ who've been made new by the power of the gospel. And we can't just brush past that term of endearment without consideration because this is a perspective that is uniquely Christian. This is not a perspective that's possible for the unbeliever. It doesn't even make rational sense to the unbeliever, let alone is it possible for them to consider it all joy when they experience trials of many kinds. But understand he's not out of touch with the fact that many of the people reading this letter are themselves in the midst of perhaps the greatest trial they've ever experienced in their lives. For many, this has been a terrible time of being uprooted from their home, uprooted from their jobs, from relationships, being pressed out because of their faith. And yet against that backdrop, James begins the letter by saying, brothers, Consider it all joy. Consider it highest joy. It reminds us that the starting place this morning as we think about this issue of trials is the gospel itself. We have to begin there. You you have to begin there. Ask yourself, have you personally come to the place in which you've turned from your sins and repentance and placed your faith squarely in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation? Have you come to the place that you understand your sins separate you from a holy God, that you have no hope of heaven, no hope of a right relationship with God or forgiveness of sin unless God does something on your behalf? And what God has done is sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place, even to live in your place, to offer up his righteous life for you and then rise from the grave. The Bible says if you will place your faith in Jesus alone and his sacrifice for your sin, then you will be saved. Has that been true for you? Because if not, then understand that, that any application of what we're going to say or what we have said is going to be impossible for you. But for those who, who are under this umbrella that James refers to as my brethren, there is great eternal hope for you this morning no matter what you're experiencing in your life because because of the power of Jesus Christ the transforming work of the Holy Spirit we can take on in increasing measure this perspective to consider it all joy but if you've never come to the place of repentance and faith I I beg you this morning to start there humble yourself even now in your heart before the Lord and call out to him for salvation But if you are in Christ, then let's continue on then with the rest of his explanation because he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, and this is what the it refers to, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Notice he begins with the word when. Now that's instructive, right? He doesn't say if. 
He says, when? Understand that trials in life are an inevitability. Any gospel message that preaches that the gospel is rescue from all forms of trial is not the biblical gospel. Just look at the life of Christ and those closest to him, and that's quickly debunked. In fact, Jesus says that we will experience trouble in this life. Even in the Old Testament, Job 5.7 says, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. If you've ever seen a campfire, the sparks fly upward out of that fire. In the same way, just as surely as that's going to happen when you light a fire, man is made for trouble, for trial, for difficulty, because we live in a fallen world. And so it's not haphazardly then that he begins by saying, When? When you encounter various trials. The word encounter is also instructive for us because the insinuation of this Greek word is that these trials come to us unexpectedly. In fact, we could even translate this when you fall into trials. When you fall into them. If you think about it, trials most often happen in our life out of the blue. One minute. Life is operating completely normally. The next minute, everything's been flipped on its head. Just a single phone call can cause everything in your life to completely flip. But while we can't anticipate most of the trials that we go through, the word when helps us because it essentially says, as a Christian, you ought to expect the unexpected. So don't be surprised when you're surprised. And that's actually helpful. It's, it's, it's helpful to say, hey, this is, this is not strange. This is not outside the providential hand of God that this trial has suddenly come upon me. It's only sudden to me. It's not sudden to the sovereign God who has ordained it. Notice also the words various. When you encounter various trials. These trials that we have in life are going to vary across the spectrum in severity. And this word various ought to be encouraging to you because it means nothing's off the table. Everything from a change of plans because of a a canceled appointment or a flat tire to the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one or that, that terminal diagnosis, job loss, everything in between is included in this word various. All throughout life, we will have a variety of trials that we will encounter most of the time out of the blue, unexpectedly on our behalf. And James says, I want you to consider every single one of them, every single time, as great joy. It's a good reminder. We ought not to minimize the trials of others, but instead seek to come alongside, encourage them to to cultivate the right biblical perspective regardless of the nature of the trial. This is true, of course, as we encourage one another in our own local body, but it's also true in our own households as we interact with our spouse and with our children. You know, it can be tempting to be impatient when others are struggling with something that we either don't identify with or we deem to be very light. Especially, it's tempting when we're personally going through something extremely heavy and someone begins to, to lament going through something that's, that's very surface level, we can be tempted to be short with that person. We can be tempted sinfully just to encourage them to get over it. Just, just let it go. It's not a big deal. This can especially be true of us with parent, as parents with our children when they're, when they're young because the, the, the struggles and trials that they have are, are, are really relatively small on the grand scheme of things. We can see that. They can't. And so the proper response with with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our spouse, with our children, is regardless of the the trial itself, whether it's a broken crayon or the loss of a parent or a spouse, it's to come alongside lovingly and to point them back to the biblical model of how do we walk through trials. Because when our children are young, let me camp on that for a second, they don't know. They may not know the Lord to start, but if they do, they're going to be young in their faith And what we do to benefit them, to steward them, is to teach them this perspective so when the trials get bigger, and they will, they have the tools to walk in those things. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I think it's important for us to stop here kind of at the halfway point and just ask a quick question that I want you to keep in your mind for the rest of the way. 
When you encounter trials in this life, whether they're of great magnitude or very small inconveniences, how do you typically respond? Not how should you respond, how do you respond? Do you get angry? Do you get annoyed? Do you become anxious and afraid? Do you find yourself pulling away from God, away from reading the scriptures, away from biblical preaching, away from the people of God? Or do you find yourself drawing further, uh, closer to those things, drawing near to those things? Take an honest assessment of yourself now, and then let's let the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, do its work in us this morning to, to help us to, to walk more closely with the truth. You know, it's a, it may be tempting for you this morning when you hear this command to consider it all joy. It may not be new to you, but it may hit you in a different way because right now you're in a really difficult time. And it can be tempting in our flesh to think, you know, how could he say that to me with what I'm going through? I mean, if he only knew, if James really knew the details of my circumstance, he would never say this to me. Consider this all joy. Well, surely we wouldn't be so bold as to suggest that, that God is unaware of the severity of our situation, would we? Remember that these words are not primarily the words of James. They're the inspired words of God himself. And so behind the pen of James is a loving, gracious, sovereign God who knows you and knows your circumstance to the minute details. And he says to you, consider it all joy. But that brings us to the real question, how? How do we do that practically? How can that be possible for us in the midst of the greatest difficulties of life? And this is step number two, and that is understand the fruit of trials. We have to understand the fruit of trials. Not only do we have to value trials correctly, we have to understand the fruit of trials. And he tells us this here in verse 3, begins with the word knowing. Knowing that. So consider it all joy, knowing that. Now, the word knowing is not another command. It's a participle, uh, which means it's describing the command. It's, It's filling out the command. It's explaining the command. So the command is to consider it all joy, but here's the the how. How do we do that? Well, we do it by knowing something. It comes back to our our knowledge. Notice again that emotions are not brought into play. Again, he's not saying we shouldn't have them. He's saying we shouldn't give authority to them. Rather, than allowing our emotions to dictate our assessment of our circumstance, we've got to come back to something that we know. Bring your mind intentionally back to a very particular truth. So we might say then that a right assessment of the value of trials comes down to a truth that we know rather than an emotion that we feel. And this is so important for us to grasp because you know when you're in the face of a trial, when you're in the heat of the battle, we're tempted in our flesh only to see the the unpleasant aspects of our situation. But James instructs us to take hold of our minds and to intentionally come back to a truth that we are to know. What is that truth? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. The word testing here is important for us. It means the process or means of determining the genuineness of something. The process or means of determining the genuineness of something. We understand in the scriptures here later in James, he's going to be very clear that God never tempts us to sin. This is James 1.13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So he doesn't tempt us to sin, but God does providentially, intentionally test us. He tests us, but he tests us not for our harm, but for our good. God, in his goodness, puts his people and their faith to the test. And specifically, it's our faith here that's mentioned that is tested, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
Understand that God is not content for you and me to boast of what great theoretical faith we would have in some imagined scenario. In context, remember, James is referring to people he deems to be Christians. And so while, while it is biblical uh, to, to test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, Paul says that to the Corinthians, I don't think that's the meaning here. Instead, this is a call for the, the true nature of our faith to be exposed, to be revealed, and to be refined. Don't forget that this is supposed to be the motivation and the explanation of how we consider it all joy. So he means for this to be an encouragement to us when he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that, that again, means this is not for our harm, but for our good. Remember also that God doesn't need a test to know the nature of your faith. He already knows the nature of your faith. So the testing then is not for his benefit. It's not as if he wants to find out what's in there, so he rattles your cage a little bit. No, that's, that's not the idea. He, he puts you in a test to reveal and refine your faith for your spiritual benefit. And you know what? Even for the benefit of the church and even for the benefit of the lost, dying world that's watching you. And so it, it has ripple effects that go further than even just your personal life or your personal home. But don't get mixed up here. The encouragement is not the test. Because you might say, that I'm not very encouraged by the idea that he's going to test my faith. The encouragement is what's produced by the test. Look at the, the text again. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness is another uh, translation of that word. It produces steadfast endurance. The reason that this causes us to consider trials as all joy is because when you are tested, when your faith as a true Christian is tested, it, it reveals your faith, it strengthens your faith, and in the end it produces a steadfast faith, an enduring faith. The word endurance here means the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. It, it, it can carry a strong load, a strong weight. You know, I'm a, I'm a documentary fan. I remember watching a documentary once on Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're aware that he's famous for a number of things, but chief among those, he's famous for being a ginormously muscular human being. And while we can speculate as to what substances may have gone into his body to help aid his size, there's no denying the fact that he spent an awful lot of time in the gym working on his body. And in that documentary, I was struck by the fact that, that he described how he became addicted, literally addicted, to the intense burning sensation that you get when you push your muscles to the absolute breaking point. That, that same burning sensation that keeps most of us out of the gym was the reason that he wanted to go to the gym. He said, he said it was like a drug, literally. He's like, I could not get enough of that burning sensation. He would push himself to the limit hour after hour, day after day, to get more of that burning sensation. But understand, the reason he fell in love with that feeling was not because the sensation itself was actually pleasant. It was because he knew that that feeling is what would lead to the end result of having the physical physique that he wanted to be famous for. He liked the product that came from pushing his muscles to the limit and burning them to the point that he couldn't lift another ounce. That's the idea here. It's not that we have this sadistic idea of trials in which we just long for God to, you know, give me your best shot, just, just hit me, I'm ready, I'm ready for these trials. As if we want to be in hardship, that, that's not the idea. But we do long to be more like our Savior, don't we? Don't we long to know Him more and to be more like Him? Is that not our aim in life? And so when you're telling me that that comes through this process of testing, then I'll take the testing. I'll even grow to love the testing, not because in and of itself it's fun or pleasurable or good, but because I know that through it, God is producing in me steadfastness, a faith that can endure, that can stand up under the weight of greater difficulty and trial. This is what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 11. 
He says, but we have this treasure, this ministry of the gospel, in earthen vessels, referring to their, their, their physical body, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Though it's true that God designs trials for our lives that push us beyond what is comfortable, he will never forsake us in those trials. And he will never allow those trials ultimately to crush us. The word translated produces here, back in James chapter 1 verse 3, can also be translated as accomplishes or achieves. So this, this testing of our faith through trials, it, it accomplishes endurance and steadfastness. It accomplishes a faith that's like a lighthouse perched on the, the edge of the ocean that's battered and beaten day in and day out by the waves. And yet when the storm passes, there the lighthouse stands. That's the kind of faith that God's seeking to produce in us. But it does bring up the question, how exactly do trials test our faith? Uh, what are these tests? Well, trials test our faith because they force us to believe truths that seem at the moment to be in conflict with our circumstances. We, we believe this, but things happening around me are tempting, tempting me to believe that maybe I shouldn't believe those things. There's a helpful passage in Deuteronomy given to the people of Israel that, that has an application for us as we think about this. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it's easy to memorize. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, what this scripture is highlighting is that while God in his grace has revealed much to us in the scriptures, he's told us a whole lot of things in the inspired scriptures, he has not chosen to tell us everything. There will always remain some things that the author refers to as the secret things, the mysteries of God. And so when we get into a trial, we're tempted to to, to be distracted by wanting to know the secret things. We have questions like, why is this happening to me? What is God seeking to accomplish through this? And how is this going to turn out in the end? How is the story going to finish? We want to know those things, but those things belong to the secret things. They're mysteries that God himself knows, but has chosen not to reveal to us. But the revealed things... The things within this book, these are the things that are for our strengthening and for our encouragement. And so when you are tempted to be distracted by the secret things, the mysteries that God has not said to us, our response is to come back again to what we know, the revealed things. We have faith in the midst of the questions of life by focusing on the answers that God has given us in life. Let me explain it this way. When your mind is tempted to be consumed with the secret things, the mysteries of God, you will be tempted to, to question God in three primary areas. Our faith will be tested in the realm of God's ability. So we'll begin to be tempted to doubt God's ability. Secondly, our faith will be tempted in, towards doubt in God's character and our faith will be tempted towards doubt in God's promises. His ability, his character, and his promises. When, when God changes our circumstances and things get really difficult, we can, can be tempted to wonder, is God really able? C can he really get me through this? Can he cause this, even this, to turn out for my good? 
At other times, we remain resolute in God's ability. We don't doubt his ability to do something. We doubt whether or not it's actually going to be used for good in our lives. We, we begin to question his character. Is he really as good as he says he is? And then other times when the, the clouds of darkness surround us and our circumstances begin to change, we start to question the promises that God has made in his word. And we start to wonder, have I, have I put my faith in the right place? Is heaven really for real? Did Christ really pay for all my sins? Will he truly never leave me or forsake me? Can, can he really use even this for good? We can be tempted in our flesh to have those kinds of thoughts in the midst of a trial. And so we have to then take our, 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 our view off of the secret things, the mysteries, and come back to the truth. What James gives us here really is a lesson in the nature of faith itself. This testing of our faith. What is faith? You know, a lot of people think of faith like an instinct, like a light switch, that it's always there, the power's always there, and we just wait for a trial to come, we flip the switch, and voila, we're going to have faith to make it through this trial. But then when they, when they actually get to the trial and they start flipping the switch, they start to notice, I'm struggling, it's not working, it must not work for me. That's because faith is not an instinct. Faith is much more like a muscle, a muscle that must be exercised. I want to recommend to you a, a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd called Spiritual Depression. It is a, it's a very helpful book, uh, it, and I think you'll be benefited by it. But he talks about the nature of faith. Listen to what jo uh, Jones says about faith. What is faith? Let us look at it positively. The principle taught here is that faith is an activity. It's something that has to be exercised. It does not come into operation itself. You and I have to put it into operation. It's a form of activity. What he means then is that in the midst of trials, you have to force your mind to remember and believe the truth. It's active. It doesn't just come on its own. You have to take yourself in hand, he calls it. He goes on to say that, that we have to begin preaching to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. Don't just listen to your thoughts all day long. Sometimes we can think that we're thinking when actually we're just listening to the thoughts that are randomly coming. He says, take a hold of those thoughts and you start speaking truth to yourself. Preach to yourself every day, but especially in the midst of trials. And it looks like this. He goes on to say, faith says, I cannot believe that he who has brought me so far is going to let me down at this point. It's impossible. It would be inconsistent with the character of God. So faith, having refused to be controlled by circumstances, reminds itself of what it believes and what it knows. That's what it is to preach to yourself, to say, wait a minute, wake up. You're acting as if God's not on his throne. You're acting as if he's not who he says he is. And I know that he is good. And I know that he is sovereign. And therefore, I will trust him no matter how dark these clouds look on the horizon. That's what it is to take yourself in hand, to preach the truth to yourself when your flesh is tempting you to go the other way. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God is really sovereign over your life? But there is nothing that has ever happened to you or ever will happen to you that's outside of his providential plan for your life. And do you understand and believe that he will use everything in your life to bring about good spiritual results? We have to believe that if we're ever to consider it all joy. That brings us to one final ingredient that we'll look at quickly in verse 4. Ingredient number 2, your cooperation with trials. Your cooperation with trials. Verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a second command. The command centers on the word have. Let it have. That is, let this work take place. Place. Let endurance accomplish its work. And specifically, he says, let it accomplish its work in you. You know, so many times Christians just, just take the posture of, of I've got to hunker down, I've got to grip my teeth until this is over and just kind of make it through. No, that's not the Christian response. 
The Christian response is to let that trial have its way. Let that endurance do its work in you to produce spiritual fruit. And that means you've got to cooperate with it. You've got to give your maximum effort towards it. You don't just sit there in the midst of the trial and expect that God's going to magically sanctify you. God is at work in you. But as he says in Philippians chapter 2, there is this this call for us also to participate. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, give your maximum effort to bear spiritual fruit. Work out your salvation. Let it become reality in your life and your character. Verse 13, here's the hope. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is continually working in us, giving us both the desire for holiness and the ability to do that work, we can then give our maximum effort knowing that it will bear fruit by his grace. And here's the result. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice he says, so that you may be perfect. Let let it have its work, endurance, so that you may be perfect. This is about our spiritual growth. That's what God is doing. He wants you to grow, to move on, yes, towards perfection. That word means perfect. And he's not saying that you will be perfect in this life. What he's saying is perfection, the perfect righteousness of Christ, it will always be the standard, so there's always room to grow. You never reach the point in this life where you stop striving. It's a dangerous place to come to a place where you're, you're settled in your current level of maturity in Christ. Don't get there, Christian. Danger, warning signs. What he's saying is you keep pressing on, and as God brings trials into your lives, and you trust what you know is true, and you believe that truth in the midst of the difficulties, it builds an enduring faith. That enduring faith then does a work inside of you so that the Holy Spirit uses it to cause you to progress in personal holiness. And it happens over and over and over again as God brings us one degree closer to the character of Christ. And he'll keep doing that work until the day we see him face to face. When we understand that, and only when we understand that, does the original command make sense. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. I just want to say, I want to, Be careful to make sure that no one misunderstands and thinks that I or James or certainly God is minimizing whatever trial you may be in this morning. I know we have many trials represented in this room, some of of grave magnitude. But my hope is that you will understand from this text that God's not minimizing that. But God is highlighting the fact that he is sovereign and he is good and he loves and he cares for you. And that means your trials matter. There's a purpose to your suffering. It is not chaos. It is not random. But God is at work in you, Christian, through the things he's providentially brought into your life. And he loves you. And he will never let you go. Because of that, we can press on then. And I just want to leave you with three encouragements as we close. Number one, fight for a divine perspective regarding trials. Fight for a divine perspective regarding trials. Refuse to give in to the temptation of listening to yourself and the world around you and fight to take on the perspective that God has given us in this text. Secondly, rehearse biblical truth in the midst of trials. If you are in the habit of listening to yourself rather than speaking to yourself, Stop that habit today. Start speaking truth to yourself. Call, call yourself to task and say, no, I won't think that way. I won't speak that way. I won't feel that way. This is what God has said, and I'm going to walk in it come what may. Speak to yourself. People might think you're crazy. It doesn't matter. Walk in holiness. Speak the truth to yourself, Christian. You may have to do that a thousand times a day, but do it. Speak the truth to yourself until your feet start walking according to that truth. Thirdly and finally, 
pursue spiritual fruit as a result of trials. We have to believe that sanctification is more valuable than personal comfort and than an easy and happy life. If your goal is to live an easy, pain-free, difficulty-free life, then when hardship comes, you will not see sanctification as a prize worth fighting for. But God has not saved you to give you an easy life. He has saved you that you might be redeemed and conformed to the image of his son. That is his highest priority in your personal life, is that you would not only know his son, but be made to be like his son. You have to value that sanctification to that highest degree if you're to live out this passage. Is sanctification and Christ-likeness of supreme value to you? If it is, then and only then can you consider it all joy. Understand that God has not promised to rescue us from every trial, but he has promised never to leave us and to sanctify us through them all. May we trust him to do that good and perfect work. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we take comfort in these truths. So many times you bring us through life's valleys and in our faithlessness, we struggle to trust, we struggle to obey, we struggle to follow. And God, we confess we need your help in these things. We need you to strengthen us. We so desperately long to to be like our Savior. We recognize that trials often are one of the tools in your tool belt that you use to, to cause that graciously to happen. So help us, Lord, in the midst of our trials, not only to pray that you would take them away, but to pray that they would have their way in us, that you would use that trial like a master sculptor to cut away the sin that remains and to conform us to your son. We thank you that we are safe in your sovereign hands and that your goodness is perfect and that you will finish what you began in us. Thank you for these truths. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.